0: And please open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 7. Tonight we'll be considering the chapter in its entirety, and you can find that on page 5 in the Pew Bible. Genesis chapter 7. Brothers and sisters, this is the Word of God. Then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals the male and his mate, and a pair of the animals that are not clean, the male and his mate, and seven pairs of the birds of the heavens also, male and female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of all the earth. For in seven days. I will send rain on the earth 40 days and 40 nights, and every living thing that I have made I will blot out from the face of the ground. And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. Noah was 600 years old when the flood of waters came upon the earth, and Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood of clean animals and of animals that are not clean and of birds and of every thing that creeps on the ground, two and two, male and female, went into the ark with Noah as God had commanded Noah. And after seven days, the waters of the flood came upon the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth and the windows of the heavens were opened. And rain fell upon the earth forty days and forty nights. On the very same day Noah and his sons, Shem and Ham and Japheth and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark. They and every beast according to its kind and all the livestock according to their kinds and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind and every bird according to its kind, every winged creature. They went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh in which... There was the breath of life, and those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. The flood continued forty days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters, and the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. And all flesh died that moved on the earth. Birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth and all mankind. Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out Every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heaven, they were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. Here ends the reading of God's holy word. And to his name be praise. Let's pray together and ask for his blessing. Father, it is right and good that we should hear the record of this historical event with somber hearts, recognizing that the creatures and the people whose deaths are here recorded are real. And the destruction of the earth as we read it in Genesis 7 is true and dreadful and terrible eclipsed only by your matchless grace and loving kindness to Noah and his family and to us who have run for refuge, not to Noah's ark, but to Noah's God. so I pray you'd give us such faith, give us feet to fly to Christ, our refuge and our strength from the wrath of God. I pray these things in his name and for his sake, amen. On the afternoon of May 31st, 1889, Reverend G.W. Brown hiked into the hills above his home of Jonestown, Pennsylvania. That year's May showers had dumped record levels of rain, leaving the ground soaked and the lakes and rivers swollen. Reverend Brown had heard a troubling report that the dam which protected Jonestown from the waters of the South Fork Lake had begun to leak and so he went to investigate to see if the rumor was true. And he didn't know it as he hiked out to the dam, but he was about to witness one of the deadliest tragedies in American history. He writes, Having heard the rumor that the reservoir was leaking, I went up to see for myself, and when I approached, the water was running over the breast of the dam. The first break in the earthen surface made a few minutes later was large enough to admit the passage of train cars. When I witnessed that, I exclaimed, God have mercy on the people below. The dam melted away, oh how quickly. I watched until the wall, of, uh, until the wall that held back the waters was torn away and the entire lake began to move until finally with a tremendous rush that made the hills quake, the vast body of water was poured out into the valley below. A 60 foot wall of water and debris roared through the hills until it came crashing down upon the unsuspecting people of Jonestown. In a matter of minutes, the town was obliterated, washed away in a wave of death that claimed the lives of some 2,000 people. In our text this morning, pardon. In our text this evening, we're invited to inspect and investigate another dam that is the dam of God's patience, holding back the floodwaters of His wrath against the sins of mankind. And with Noah, we look and see this dam of God's forbearance, buckling and bulging beneath the great force of God's righteous fury until suddenly, as we read in our text this evening, it gives way and breaks, and divine patience is swallowed up in divine punishment. Now, if you've been with us in the past weeks as we've been hopscotching our way through Genesis, you've seen and we've all learned together that humanity has by this point become so unbearably corrupt in God's sight, so totally depraved in the deepest recesses of His nature that the Lord has determined to blot out mankind, but not just mankind. God has determined to blot out the rest of creation with man for that creation has been contaminated as well by the curse of Adam's sin. But you remember last week how we marveled at this grace in the midst of wrath, that of the entire human population the Lord was pleased to show saving grace and covenant love to Noah. So, God warned Noah of the disastrous deluge that was about to be unleashed upon the earth and and commanded him to build a great ark, a box, so that he and his family might escape with a pair of every kind of animal So that together they might survive the unknown but imminent day of judgment and so that they might replenish the earth. So this evening I hope with God's help to convince you that this story that we read tonight in Genesis 7 is in the Bible not only so that you and I might know and believe what God has done in history past, but so that you and I might know and believe what God is going to do one day soon and so that you and I might be prepared for the day of God's judgment which is coming soon. That's what I want to show you tonight, that the day of God's judgment is coming soon. First, we'll look together and, and consider the, the buildup the anticipation of judgment that's recorded in our text. Can you feel it as we're reading through the chapter? The air of the text is, is electric with anticipation. It's as if we can hear the timpanis rolling and building and the symphony swelling as the chapter presses on towards this symbol crashing dam-bursting crescendo. And Moses, the Holy Spirit-inspired author of Genesis 7, Makes us to feel this epic intensity through, uh, of the story through, through repetition. Did you feel that and hear that sense of repetition as we read the chapter emphasizing these themes of work and worship? Work and worship. We first meet Noah in, at the end of Genesis 5 there in verse 32. And he's 500 years old. And then we read Genesis 6. And by the time we come to Genesis 7, Noah is... 600 years old. I'm no mathematician, but it seems a safe conclusion to say that in the space between the beginning of Genesis 6 and our text tonight, some 100 years has passed in the life of the patriarch. And we can imagine what that century may have looked like if you had taken, you hunters maybe, a game camera, a motion detected game camera, and put it high on a hill on a tree overlooking maybe this this place in which Noah was to construct his ark. We can imagine that century in a time lapse. Take all those pictures over the century and smash them together and, and we can see quickly countless trees being sawn down and great forests being felled. We see mountains of logs piled and then milled and cut to their Divinely ordered length and specifications. And then we can see the skeletal frame of the ark begin to take shape inside the nest of this archaic scaffolding. And then we see the first and the second and the third decks all stack into view. And then the many rooms and then the roof and then the door. And we can see the ark's hull as it's skinned with planks of gopher wood and sealed watertight inside and out with tar. And as the sawdust clears, there she stands, complete the ark. And there he stands, Noah, 600 years young, and his family. It is nearly impossible to imagine the scale of Noah's creation. I say nearly impossible because Ken Ham and his creation museum have labored long to the best of their ability, to recreate the ark according to, as close they as they can guess, biblical specifications that we discussed last Sunday. And did you know that today, that ark, that big biblical display, is the single largest timber frame building on planet Earth today? It's hard to imagine the scale of Noah's project. And now, in verse 4, Noah receives the news for which he's been working and waiting so long. The time has come. In seven days, says the Lord, I will send rain on the earth. Forty days and forty nights and every living thing that I have made I will blot out from the face of the ground. You ever notice, as you've read this story, no doubt, over and over and over again, in your childhood years and adolescence and young adulthood and mid-adulthood and wherever you might be now, that Noah doesn't say a lot. He's a strong, silent type, perhaps. In fact, in, in the four chapters, Genesis six through nine, six, seven, eight, nine, four eight, nines, four chapters, that record the life of Noah, we only have one thing that he ever said. It's a curse on Ham and Canaan. He's got one line in the whole epic drama of his life. Why is that? I think maybe because we don't need more than what we have here in the Scriptures, but I think also because Noah is set before us as a paragon of virtue, not of vocabulary, of obedience, not oratory, of works, not words. Do you not hear that beautiful God honoring refrain as it echoes through the chapter, not of something Moses said, but of something that was said about, sorry, Noah. Verse five, Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. Verse nine, two and two, male and female, went into the ark with Noah as God commanded Noah. Again, there in verse 15. They went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh, in which there was the breath of life, and those that entered, male and female, of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him, as the Lord commanded Noah. He did as God commanded him, oh, that it could be said of you and of me, he or she lived in accordance with the commandments of God. Well, last week I argued that Noah's costly faith was inspired by God's covenant love for him that in view of God's great mercy, Noah offered his life and all that he had and his strength and resources, his very family as a living sacrifice. But it's not the only thing that drove his obedience last week. Again, we considered Hebrews eleven seven. By faith, Noah being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen in reverent fear, reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. So, you see, Noah obeyed God's Word because he believed God's warning. Noah believed God's Word because he believed God's warning. Noah's obedience was fueled by a love for God, but also a loving fear of God. Children, why do you look both ways before you cross the street? Why do you wear your seatbelt in the car? Why do you tell your parents the truth, I hope, when they ask and try to control your mouth and your hands from lashing out at your siblings when you're angry? Because while you love your parents, you should also fear them and fear the consequences of disobeying them and fear the path of disobedience that your days may be long, God says in the fifth commandment. And it's no different for you or I, Christian believer. Loving fear was a powerful force. Loving fear was a powerful force driving Noah's religion. And so it should be for ours as well. What place does fear play in your Christianity? uh, Proverbs 16 verse 6 says, By steadfast love and faithfulness, iniquity is atoned for. And by the fear of the Lord, one turns away from evil. Well, the Bible is filled with promises, with warnings that exist to inspire our fear and restrain the wickedness in our hearts and lives. Throughout the Scriptures, God places the price tag on sin. and He says, if you go this way, this is what you can expect and you should be afraid of it so that you would not go that way. But He also places the price tag on obedience. If you go this way, this is the blessing you can humbly anticipate and you should want it and go this way. Why must I repent of the anger in my heart? You may be wondering tonight, what's, what's bad about bitterness? Because Jesus said in Matthew 5, everyone who's angry with his brother will be liable to judgment and that should make us afraid. Why must I kill the lust in my heart and in my eyes? Because God promises in Proverbs 6.33, he who commits adultery will get wounds and dishonor and his disgrace will not be wiped away. And that should fill the godly with holy fear and drive us in the opposite direction. Why must I take the Lord's Supper so seriously? And why should the elders take it seriously as we examine covenant children and prospective members before admitting them to the table because of what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 verse 29, anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died, and that should make the godly fear. No, the enemy, the devil can never snatch a Christian out of God's hand, Satan can never steal your salvation. He may have power, but he's not that powerful. But he can frustrate our sanctification. Don't you know it to be true? Oh, how we can frustrate our sanctification, how we can clog our chariots' wheels with mud, how he can cause us to spiritually stagnate so that we experience no progress, no fruit, no victory, no growth in grace. And one of the ways he does this is by convincing us that loving fear has no place in love for God. One of the ways Satan thwarts our sanctification and robs your life of joy and fruitfulness is by convincing you that love for God is antithetical to a loving fear of God. But how does that work in parenting? How dreadful, how disobedient the child who doesn't lovingly fear his or her father. And there's something else repeated in this week of anticipation, not just work, but worship in the second place. Look at verse two and three. Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, the male and his mate, and a pair of the animals that are not clean, the male and his mate, and seven pairs of the birds of the heavens also, male and female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of the earth. Also down to verse 8, of clean animals and of animals that are not clean and of birds and of everything that creeps on the ground, two and two, male and female, went into the ark with Noah as God had commanded Noah. These are the very first references in all of the Bible to clean and unclean animals. Isn't that something? A precursor to the Levitical sacrificial system that will be spelled out in full on Mount Sinai's peak. We learn things, don't we? from this distinction between clean and unclean? We learn things. First, we learn something about God's sovereignty over His own worship. Children, what animals would you put in the clean column? Sure, you would put puppies, right, and kitties, and you would put little fluffy bunny rabbits and you might make the mistake that I made when I went to Tractor Supply earlier this week and saw that they had ducklings. <laughs> and I had to call my wife and deliver the bad news that I got three ducklings. Um, why? You might ask. Because they look clean. They look sweet. And I like them. I don't know what we're going to do with them. I've talked to the Scott family who dabbled with duck ownership. And they said they're only clean for like a millisecond until they're not what animals might you put in the unclean column? If you had a list of yucky critters, spiders, slugs, termites, leeches, who decides? Who decides? Who fills in these columns in the economy of God, clean and unclean? We hear, uh, see here in Genesis 7, God decides. God decides what animals are clean and unclean. Why? Why? Because he is sovereign over his own worship, and he gets to decide what is clean and unclean in his eyes. And so our worship must be always and only ever suited to God's preferences and not our own. The second thing we learn from this clean and unclean distinction is that Noah needed a Savior. He knew he needed a Savior. In chapter 8, verse 20, we see... Why Noah needed all these clean animals. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I'll never again curse the ground because of man. You see, Noah needed sacrifices because he believed all that those sacrifices represented. He, he believed that he was a sinner deserving of death. He believed that the soul that sins should die. He believed that he needed a substitute deemed clean in heaven's eyes, worthy to die in his place because without the shedding of blood, there can be no remission of sin. And these animals, these clean animals, were previews, pictures, and signs of the spotless Lamb of God, even our own Jesus Christ who had come to take away Noah's sins and to take away all of the sins of his people who would look to him in faith and rely on him for his grace and mercy. Well, Noah's anticipation of judgment was marked by work and worship. And in the second place, having anticipated this day of judgment, we read dreadfully of the arrival of judgment. I wonder if you remember where you were on September 11th, 2001, I dare say almost all of us that were alive on that day remember where you were perhaps when you heard. I was in Mr. Scott's 10th grade English class, it was 9-15 when our principal's shaking voice crackled over the intercom, attention teachers and students. I've just learned that a few minutes ago two planes crashed into the twin towers of the World Trade Center. You remember where you were? The lives lost on that day, September 11th, 2001, though grievous in their own right, cannot be compared, cannot be compared to the lives lost on the day recorded in Genesis 7, a day that Noah remembered. The day that the flood came. You can hear it, can't you, as we hopscotch through a century of ark construction and then all of a sudden time, it seems, stops and we go from leaping through decades now to counting the moments, seeing each grain of sand as it falls in the hourglass in these last crucial moments. Look at verse 11. In the sixth 100th year of Noah's life. In the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day all the fountains of the great deep burst forth and the windows of the heavens were opened and rain fell upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. Can you imagine it? Parade of animals like the one Adam had seen marching two by two into the ark. Can you imagine the rolling of distant thunder? Can you imagine the ominous black clouds on the horizon getting closer and closer and closer? And then can you imagine feeling the first drops of rain on your arm? You can see the family shuffling on board, can't you put yourself in their sandals? You shuffle on board knowing that time is short, but then once all creatures and people are on board, you, you look back. What about the door? Who will close this great door through which the largest animals on earth could pass? Maybe we forgot something. Maybe there was a big page ripped out of God's blueprints given to Noah, but then miraculously, without a word, the door of the ark begins to close and close and close until it's shut tight by the almighty hand of God. And then you listen Can you hear the animals, the birds, the lowing of the cattle. Can you hear the heavy footsteps of the larger beasts on the creaking floorboards? Can you smell it? Food for all those animals? The animals themselves? And can you hear it? Heavy sheets of rain, heavier than the world's ever seen, falling in torrents upon the ark roof overhead. Not just any rain, but a deadly crossfire between waters pouring down from above and the waters bursting up as geysers from the fountains of the deep below. The text doesn't tell us, but I think it must be very possible, if not probable, that if you had been among Noah's family members on that day long ago, you would have heard something else. The desperate cries of the damned outside the ark. Their fists beating against the outside of the ark, their nails scratching the hull as the waters of God's wrath rise higher and higher. But it's too late. The door has been shut and sealed. One Titanic survivor named Lucy Gordon remembered the scene from the safety of her lifeboat. She wrote, there arose again a bedlam of shrieks and cries. For an entire hour there had been this awful chorus of screams, gradually falling into a collective moan. Then all was silent. No one in his family may have heard The same cries of the damned fall silent, swallowed up in the flood. Can you hear the ark's mighty timbers creaking and groaning as when enough water has fallen, the ark is lifted from its dry docks and as it shifts upon these rising waters for 40 days up and up and up above the highest Everest peaks on the earth and inside the ark, all the while everything and everyone has been kept safe and sound, hidden in the hollow of His blessed hand. But outside, everything and everyone is dead in this dreadful reversal of creation. Did you catch that? Remember in Genesis 1, we looked at this amazing way in which God separated light and darkness, and then the waters above from the waters below and the waters beneath by dredging up great land masses and continents into seas, and then how He filled that land with flora and fauna, last of all, man made in His holy and righteous image. And now, here in Genesis 7, all of that is getting reversed and rewound and destroyed. First man blotted out, then all creatures and swarming animals in the, in the sky, and, and then all of the flora, and then those divisions as the water comes crashing back like symbols, and then even the division of water from above and water from beneath as everything is washed away. My dear friend, this is, for you and I, as much a record of a past event as it is a promise of a future one. Hear me. This is, for you and I, as much a a record of a past event as it is a sure and certain promise of a future event. Jesus said in Matthew 24, as in those days, days a lot like our days, before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So, Jesus says, will be the coming of the Son of Man." I wonder if what you would have thought, perhaps, if you were one of Noah's neighbors. The Bible tells us that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. So that as Noah built, he pleaded, he preached about the incoming wrath of God and the only hope that God had offered this ark for mankind. I wonder if, as one of Noah's neighbors, oh, how they must have laughed at him and written him off as a loon and mocked him and persecuted him, but I wonder if one of those neighbors ever thought, you know, maybe today I'll I'll go and see what Noah's up to. I'll take a look at his big boat and ask him about this God of his and why he's doing all of this. And does he really believe that there's going to be this big rainstorm that comes? Do you think any of those Noahic neighbors ever laid awake at night thinking, what if Noah's right? What if judgment is coming? You know, I I should go and see Noah. I should maybe come to Noah's God and and maybe I'll get around to doing that. Not today, maybe tomorrow. My dear friend David Irving tells the story of driving with his wife down a red dirt Mississippi road and in the distance he could see a vulture, big black vulture, smack in the center of this road And that vulture, wouldn't you know, was neck deep in whatever it was eating in the middle of that road. And as David got closer and closer, he was shocked that the vulture hadn't flown away yet. Vultures always fly away. And as he got closer and closer, he laid on the horn once or twice. But the vulture just kept gorging itself on this dead, rotting thing that it was eating. Wouldn't even lift its head. And as David got closer and closer, he realized that this bird wasn't going to fly away. And he got closer and closer until that vulture became roadkill too. You see, people in Noah's day were doing the very same thing, weren't they? It's a day just like ours. They were eating and drinking, marrying and being given in marriage. Remember, the Lord looks down upon the earth and he sees that it's filled with violence and corruption and decay. A mass of humanity created in his image, now fallen in Adam, feasting upon the rotting carnal pleasures of the flesh. Unwilling to look up, unwilling to repent, unwilling to turn and be saved until it was too late. I wonder if that's where you are tonight. Maybe your heart is bearing witness against you for some unrepented sin or some unmortified sin. Maybe your conscience is nagging you. You ought to come to Jesus, cries your conscience, for the forgiveness of your sins, but you just aren't ready yet, and you convince yourself there's still time. There's there's always tomorrow. Surely the sun, as it sets, will rise tomorrow, and I can settle my affairs I can put this sin away, and I can do my business with God then, and then I can become a Christian. One day soon, I'll get serious about my faith. One day soon, I'll close with Christ. Friend, you need to take a good, hard look at this passage. You need to take a good, hard look at Genesis 7, and you need to heed my words and believe my warning when I say something is coming. Something is coming. The Bible calls it the last day. The day of the Lord, judgment day, when Jesus Christ will return just as He left, riding on the clouds of heaven, and He will come not in grace but in judgment to judge the world, not in water but in fire. And on that day, the door of salvation will be shut by the hand of God, and it will be too late to repent on that day. Too late to be reconciled to God. The olive branch that He has held out to sinners will have been revoked. So you must come now, this moment. The ark of salvation is here, not of gopher wood, but it is constructed by every righteous thought and word and deed of our blessed Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Every beam, every rigging, every floorboard, all of it constructed in the perfect obedience of your substitute and champion Jesus, sealed tight in His blood, shed on Calvary's cross for sin, yours and mine. Don't put off for tomorrow what must be resolved now, now. That's especially important for you young children to hear, especially from this story. Children, look at me. Because we think of this story colored in all the beautiful pastels of a nursery mural. But this story paints a dreadful picture and a promise of another day of judgment that is coming. And God is calling you, child, don't put off coming to Jesus. Yes, you may be young, and yes, you may be small, but you are old enough, and you are big enough to give your heart to Jesus. And to call upon Him to love you and save you. And to pledge unto Him the same. You are old and big enough to decide right now to worship the God of mommy and daddy. And to run to the ark so much better than Noah's ark. The ark that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And you can do that by simply calling out. You know, He's always listening, children. And you can call out to Him You can do that out loud with mommy and daddy or you can do that in the quiet of your own heart this evening, right now or at the foot of your bed. You say, Lord Jesus, have mercy on me. I'm a sinner, but I know you can save me and I know you will and so I'm calling upon you to be my Lord and my Savior and He will save you. He will usher you in to the ark of His salvation and deliver you from the wrath of God. The certainty of Jesus' return and judgment should drive us in faith to Christ right now, but it should also inspire for those of us who have taken our place in the only refuge for sinners that is Jesus. It should inspire our bold compassion for the lost. And Christian, if you really believe that Jesus is coming to judge the world, shouldn't our lives be fired with a sense of evangelical urgency, evangelical urgency? If we really cared about lost people? in our home, or in our families, or neighborhoods, or on our school bus, or at our place of work, or on our athletic team? Shouldn't we plead with them to come to Christ while there's still time? Even if it meant they look upon us like we're crazy as Noah. How can you say you love someone when you refuse to speak the words of life that might save them from their peril? like refusing to throw a life ring to a drowning victim. What if we, the members of Trinity Presbyterian Church, loved our neighbor so well in word and in deed that we were willing to risk offending them for the chance to save them? What if we approached every conversation, every chance encounter, every appointment as a potential rescue operation? Because Jesus is coming and he has called upon you to be his ambassador to a dead and dying world Making his appeal to the lost through you, be reconciled to my God, because he's coming back. Because he's coming back. Do you believe this? That Jesus is coming back? An old Scottish minister once asked a group of his friends one Lord's Day evening after they'd all preached in their various country churches and come together to enjoy the evening do you think Christ will come tonight? Each man answered in turn, I think not. Yes, eventually, but not tonight. No, certainly not tonight. And when everyone had answered, the minister who posed the question turned to Matthew 24, 44. The Son of Man cometh at an hour we think not. Well, may we be ready May we run to the ark that God has provided, much better than a gopher wood ark, the ark of the Lord Jesus Christ now. Amen, let's pray together. Father, we thank you for providing a safe haven, a refuge, a hiding place, a high tower, even an ark in the Lord Jesus Christ, in whom and by whom we can be saved from your wrath that our sins deserve. Oh Lord, I pray that each and every single one of us would believe that the day of your coming judgment is as real as the day of your past judgment. And as you destroyed the earth in water, so you're coming again to cleanse it in fire. Make us ready for that day, O Lord. No amount of good works and hard work can prepare us. Only your grace received through faith in Jesus Christ can make us ready so that we can live in joyful expectation and anticipation for that day. So give us such faith, O Lord, that we would be ready, and that when your son returns among us, he would find faith. We ask in Jesus' name and for you.